Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap. And as always, I'm Nika Spalding. And today we are going to finish up the second half of Lamentations chapter one. And so we're going to be looking at uh, daughter Zion's response in this chapter and her voice as she comes through. And so, yeah, so Lamentations chapter one, verses 12 to 22. This is the word of the Lord. Now upon you, all passerby, look and see. Is there pain like my pain that he inflicted upon me, that the Lord struck me with sorrow on the day his wrath flared? From on high he sent out fire, into my bones he brought it down, spread a net for my feet, made me fall back. The yoke of my trespasses is tight, twisted by his hand, climbing round my neck. He made my strength stumble. The Lord has given me into the hand of the one I cannot stand against. The master has spurned all my champions in my midst, has proclaimed an appointed time against me to break my young men. A winepress the master has trampled for the virgin Zion's daughter. For these do I weep. My eyes, my eyes are flooded for the consoler is far from me. The reviver of my failing life My children have become desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion spread her hands, and there is none to console her. The Lord has summoned for Jacob round him his foes. Jerusalem has become despised among them. Righteous is the Lord, for I have rebelled against him. Hear, pray, all you peoples, and see my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone off captive. I called out to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city when they sought food that would revive their failing lives. See, O Lord, for I am distressed. My innards are roiled. My my heart churns within me. For I have surely rebelled. Outside the sword slays sons, inside very death. They have heard that I groan, and I have none to console me. All my enemies heard of my harm were gladdened, but it was you who did it. You brought the day you summoned. May they be like me. Let all their evil become before you, and do to them as you did to me for all my trespasses. For my groans are many, and my heart aches. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, like we talked about yesterday, there's these two voices, these two people that are replaying this event of what happened, these witnesses, so to speak. The first one, the narrator, he's an outsider. And if you, again, if your ear was in tune, you're going to see that he interrupts at one point. Uh, We go from first person to an outsider perspective and really quickly and then right back in. Uh, But for the most part, we're getting daughter Zion's point of view, which is why it is so emotive, right? She says things like, my eyes, my eyes will not stop weeping. My innards are coiled up that you have me strangled by my neck. In other words, she's like, I can't breathe. I can't stand up under this, this thing that has happened, this historical event, Babylon coming and taking out the city. But how she experiences it as the metaphor is that her enemies have have totally taken her out. But notice, she's like, but it was you, God. It was you who summoned this day. Yes, Babylon did it, but the one behind Babylon was you, Lord, because, and she says so profoundly, she's like, you are righteous, and this was because I am not. 
And so Zion, daughter Zion, agrees with the outsider. We don't have this like narrator versus Zion where the narrator is like, well, and daughter Zion, well, she was um unridiculous, like ridiculously unjust and unjust. And so I just made up a bunch of words by not pronouncing words correctly. I apologize. So going back to our neighbor, Jimmy, he could be like, yeah, you know what? This is their fault. This is their fault. They play with candles and they set their house on fire. And we could have daughter Zion being like, no, it's not. I'm allowed to play with candles. My house shouldn't burn down. But instead, what we have is agreement here. The agreement that the reason why Babylon was able to come do this is because God summoned this day because Israel, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, Zion, rebelled. They continued to forsake God. And God warned them and warned them and warned them. And he is slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love. Slow to anger. But... He is just. And at some point, if you continue to, to run away unabated and continue to sin and continue to, to trample all over God, this is what happens. Now, because we have daughter Zion's point of view, th- this is so painful. But I want to point out that at no point does the narrator or Zion, the outsider who observed it, or the insider who's experiencing it, At no point do they say that God was unjust for this. Both agree because of her iniquity, because that the people of Jerusalem continued to sin. This is the warning that God gave them in this day of the Lord that came upon them through Babylon. They all agree it's because God is righteous. And that's hard for our modern sensibilities because we think any suffering is automatically bad. Okay, and so we're just like, man, anytime you suffer, God must not be good. But that is not what the ancients here are saying. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that daughter Zion's not crying out to God trying to get him to look on her. And so that's what's so emotive in the second half. So one, God is not being indicted here. So I just want to point that out. Secondly, the biggest thing that's so hard for Zion in this thing, in these, in these 12 verses, is she is not focusing on what she lost. Now, that's part of it. But the biggest thing that brings her grief and lament is that she cannot get God to look upon her. She cannot get anyone to comfort her. No one's coming for her. And so she starts off, look at me. And then she turns to the passerby. And the passerby, one commentator says like this idea of passerby is this, um, it's a conventional Hebrew term in Hebrew poetry for a witness to suffering and devastation who mock the sufferer. And so she's looking at the passerby and she's like, hey, Look at me. Is there any pain like this pain? Because she can't get an audience with God. Because she believes that God is not looking upon her and her affliction. Because she's crying out to God and she cannot get God to look at her. She thinks she can't get God to look at her. She looks at the passerby who normally would be someone who mocks her. And she's like, look at me. And then she's like, is there any pain like this pain? And then she says, you know, I called out to my lovers, but they deceived me. And most likely what this is a reference to her lovers is Jerusalem would have had allies, you know, like political allies, like country allies during this time when Babylon's coming in. Notably, Egypt should have been an ally. And so probably what this is a reference to is when Babylon's coming in to take over Jerusalem, I am I am positive, you know, Jerusalem sent emissaries to Egypt to say, hey, can you come help us out? And Egypt was like, nah, which is a very good warning. God has continuously told the people, I am your helper. I am your azer, your warrior helper. Where do, Look to the hills. Where does your help come from? It comes from the Lord, right? 
And Israel, Egypt, both, I mean, excuse me, Israel and Judah, both the northern and southern kingdoms consistently try to find allies outside of God. No, it's not inherently bad, except that that's where they place their faith and their trust. And look where it got them. Babylon's coming in. They place their trust in Egypt, which, by the way, enslaved the Israelites for 400 years. Not a great choice. But anyways, and Egypt's like, nah, hard pass. We don't really want to go up against Nebuchadnezzar. But God all along's like, hey, hi, I'm your warrior. I will fight for you. You need only to be still. And they consistently like, yeah, we would rather have Egypt, which I don't know about you. If you want Egypt or mm, God, if you want to see a showdown between like Egypt and like mm, God, you can just go back to the Exodus and it's not even a close fight. Like we don't have to go to the scorecard. It is an absolute TKO. God takes them out. What makes Israel think Egypt is a better ally than mm, what's his name again? Oh yeah. God. God is on their side if they would just repent. He's like, if you will just repent, I will, I got you, fam. And they're like, mm, we kind of like the Egyptians. And so look at what happens. So she says, she says, hey, I turned to my lovers, Egypt and other allies, and they deceived me. They did not come for me. The thrust of this over and over again in daughter's eye on is there is no one who will comfort her. She has experienced the most devastating loss. She, the metaphor goes, hey, I have been sexually violated. My husband has been killed. I'm a widower. My children have been taken from me. I am bereaved. I am all alone. My filthiness is on display. My nakedness is on display. And no one will look at me and comfort me. So for the, for the first half, the narrator, what he is concerned about is how they went from glory to dust. He's like, oh, man, like you guys used to have it all. Like you guys were like top dogs. And then what's interesting is daughter of Zion, that's not where the thrust of her grief comes from. Hers is because she cannot get anyone to comfort. She feels her utter loneliness. So notice in verse 16, the emphasis here, she says, for these, I do not weep. She talks about the wine press being trampled and all these things. And her champions being cut down. She's like, for these I do not, I, or I'm, excuse me, for these I weep. My eyes, my eyes are flooded. Why? Because the consoler is far from me. The, re, the reviver of my feel, failing life. Wow, words are hard today for me. The consoler, this is why I weep. The consoler is far from me. The reviver of my failing life. My children have become desolate for the enemy has prevailed. She's like, hey, I hear you talking about my temple. And I hear you talking about all these things. That is not why I am weeping. I am weeping because the consoler is far from me. Not, not the former things. It's the fact that my God is not comforting me. And then we get in verse 17, the narrator interrupts her. And so he, again, it goes from first person like my, me, I, and then all of a sudden the narrator comes in and says, Zion spreads her hands. And this is a gesture of like outward spreading his like, like pain and like I'm hurting, like she's putting her hands out. Imagine like you're standing there putting your hands out. You're like crying out to people. You, like it's a very vulnerable posture. Like if you just literally, as you're listening, it's like in your car or while your kids are napping, wherever, like if you just put your hands out, like open your hands up and open them wide, you can imagine the posture. Like it's sitting on the ground or standing up and you have your arms out. It's almost as like you're asking for a hug. It's like you're looking at like someone care about me. And then he says, there is no one to console her. There is no one to console her. She has become despised 
among them. And that despised among them, if you guys are reading along in your Bibles or you check out your Bibles, if you go to Lamentations 1, 17, depending on the Bible translation you have, you may have even, instead of saying they despised her, like the people that should have, like her foes, they are despising her. You might have, they look at her like she's a filthy rag, or I think one even has filthy garbage. The reason why it's because this word, it's the Hebrew, nadah, and it can mean a, a menstrual rag, which menstrual rags in the ancient world made a person unclean. Now, I should point out cleanliness and uncleanliness. It's not that it's good, bad. It's just the state in which you have to be to come and participate in temple worship. But that means a menstrual rag and anyone who touches it, it makes you unclean. So it makes you not worthy to be touched or, or frankly, consoled, which would be the context here. So that word nadai can mean menstrual rag. It can mean filthy trash. Or it can mean ceremony unclean. But the use of it here, like what the author is trying to get at is the foes, like Israel's, Jerusalem's foes are looking at her as a thing unfit to be touched, whether it be a menstrual rag, filthy garbage, whatever, which is why Robert Alter, he translates it as despised. Like it's a, it's like there's disgust, there's distance. Like not only has this great tragedy befallen her, no one is going to get close to her because she nasty is really the, the sense of it here. And so no one's going to come to her. And so the second half of Lamentations chapter one, right? First half, wow, you used to have great buildings when those are gone. And you used to have the temple, whoo, gone. You used to have all these great things gone. And all of a sudden we get to the second half and it's, I have no strength left. I, I'm, I've been absolutely utterly destroyed and I cannot get anyone to look at me. I cannot get anyone to console me. And the narrator interrupts and goes, yep, I agree with that. Not only can she not get anyone to interrupt her, like she's got this posture of need. She's got these outstretched hands and not only will no one console her, they consider her nasty. Something to not even look like they despise her. So not only can she not get comfort, she can't even get a pat on the head like, oh, I'm so sorry, Jerusalem. None of that. Gone. Poof. Gone. And then it ends. So then the, then the end of the chapter comes after all of this. No one will comfort her. No one will hug this woman. No one will look upon her affliction with empathy or even with pity. Instead, they look on her with disgust. And then it gets to the end of the chapter and she's like, look, I know that I did this. I know that, but the, but the weapon you use, God, was Babylon. And aren't they sinful too? Like, don't they deserve to receive what it is that you did to me? And she's like, would you also do to them what you did to me? Let their evil come before you. Let, like, our evil came before you, and you sent Babylon. It's my fault, right? You don't get the sense that she's punting at any point here. And she's like, but would you do to them as you did to me for all my trespasses? And then the chapter ends like this. For my groans are many and my heart aches. That's it. No, oh, but I trust in your unwavering love and this is going to be good for me in the end. So like God won't give me more than I can handle and like all things work together. For Nope, that's not how this chapter ends. None of those things are wrong. I realize I just mock them, but they're kind of wrong sometimes in the midst of brokenness and pain. So what's my point in all this is Jerusalem gets her voice out there. And her voice overwhelmingly, the drumbeat of the second half of Lamentations 1 is this, is I have been pressed in. I have been afflicted. I have been beaten down. I have been violated. I have my husband taken from me, my children taken from me. And you know what hurts is I cannot get anyone to comfort me. God will not even look at me. 
Look at me, people. My arms are outstretched. No one is going to even look at me. And what's worse is the narrator backs me up and he's like, yep, not only are we not going to look at you, but the people that are near you, they look on you with disgust. No one's going to comfort you. And then you turn to God and you go, I have no strength left in me. None. I'm completely devoid of strength. So would you do to Babylon what you did to me because I cannot do it on my own. And I groan and I ache and then the scene ends. There is no nice happy ending at the end of chapter one. We just sit in it. We just sit in it. She wants God to do something because she is completely devoid of strength. And the chapter ends with, And I just hurt. I just hurt. And what's so true of this chapter, if you've been through grief, if you've been through trauma, if you've experienced loss, if you've experienced harm of this degree or any degree, really, if you've experienced grief and trauma, then you know that the pain is not just emotional. It becomes physical. It becomes spiritual. It becomes debilitating. You know that some days after you've been through this, that the hardest thing you got to do is just get out of bed right? It's to go to the next day. And the thing that happens is, is everyone else is like, oh, wow, all that they lost. And what happens internally to you is you look to your God and you're like, where are you? Where are you? So the second half of Lamentations is some of the purest, truest writings that you can read when you're in the midst of grief. Where are you? It doesn't malign God's character. God still looks just at the end of this, right? She recognized, I did this to myself. She's still hurting. And she cries out to God and she just wants someone to comfort her. She just wants somebody to look upon her. And then it just ends, not with this nice little neat bow, not with this silver lining, not with, and so like, there's a part of me that wants to rescue like this, this upbringing that I have, this like triumphalistic, victorious life that I've lived for so long makes me want to go, hey, the story doesn't end here, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Because what Lamentations is trying to do is to not be a reminder of, don't worry, better days are to come. That's not how the book's going to end for us. It's not how this chapter ends. And it's not going to be how the last chapter ends. There is one little note of hope in the middle of chapter three that we'll get to. But what this book is, as a reminder, is language for those who are hurting. And for those of us who have been through deep, deep pain, we know the days when this is where we're at. And all we can do is ask God to look at us Just look at us. And some of the most painful moments in our life are when we believe that God is silent and far. And that's what it feels like sometimes. That's what it feels like. I'm not saying it's true. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is all loving and all knowing and always good at all times. But we know that when we suffer, some of the most painful moments are not because of what we lost or not because of all the things that happened, but instead it's that interior moment between you and God when you're looking at him going, really? Where were you? And where are you now? And so I'm just going to leave us in this because that's what this chapter does. And I'm not going to rescue us from this. Instead, I'm going to say that if you have been through unbelievable loss and pain and you have been wondering where was God and where is he now, you are not alone. 
Because Lamentations is saying the thing that so many of us are too scared to say. And not only is it saying it, God saw it fit to preserve it. So that you and I would have this witness to us of people who have asked God these very questions. And it's in the wrestling with these questions that we are molded and made more into his son. And so wrestle with God if you must. All right, friends, if nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But more importantly, God does. Peace.